sure that it's on. Yeah, I'm sure. Because you you really botched that one. <laughs> Okay, welcome to the Magician and the Fool podcast. My name is Dominic, and with me is my co-host Janice. And today we're going to be continuing our talk on the cosmogenesis of the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, the Poimandres specifically. And there's just so much information in the Corpus Hermeticum. We can do a whole podcast just on that alone, but we want to... Cover and that podcast could take years. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we're going to try to cover a whole bunch of topics, so... We'll come. I imagine we'll just keep coming back to the Corpus Hermeticum. So a recap: last episode we talked about the the cosmogenesis. Um, I'm not going to run through that right now, just for the sake of time. But we, we did cover basically how um, Hermes was given this vision and was able to see how kind of the universe manifested and and, and all the different pieces that that uh, came together for that to happen. And we also noted. That the similarity with the Apocryphon of John, the introduction with the introduction of the Poimandres, where John, he goes off to a mountaintop to basically meditate and, and think about all these things that are going on, a lot of turmoil in his life, and he asks basically for assistance. And this light um, comes to him, and the universe unfolds before his eyes. Um, same thing with Hermes. He is meditating, it seems, and has what also seems like an out-of-body experience. This light comes to him and explains everything that he wants to know. And, yeah, they're very similar. I also can't help but think of Paul on the road to Damascus as well, as this this light. I think that's an inevitable right. perception, because that came to my mind also. Um, so quickly, I want to, Janice, can you talk about the difference between hermetism and hermeticism? Because you don't, you don't as often hear the term hermetism. Right, and I think that when people hear it, they just assume it's a different pronunciation or, or a mispronunciation. But hermetism really rela- re- relates to the, um, the early esoteric, the mystical, magical, alchemical, uh, contemplative, and spiritual practices and beliefs of the what I what I I think I think I would call it the exa, the Hermopolitan priesthood in exile in Alexandria, which had taken on uh, a new sort of external form uh, that was composed of um, a synthesis between Greco-Roman mystery school structure and Egyptian. Uh, theology and ceremonial practice. It was centered on and focused on 
both Hermes. So Hermes is the Greek uh, version of, uh, was considered to be the Greek version of Thoth by these people. There was Hermes Trismegistos, is uh, the Hermes of the Corpus Hermeticum. He, that is actually a direct translation of the Egyptian um, Thoth, three times very, very, very great. Uh, although there's times where you also find Thoth five times great and nine times great. But the Trismegistus is a translation from Egyptian into Greek. And the, the Roman version is uh, Mercurius Termaximus Ter is the Roman. So Janice, I did want to, I did want to touch on Hermes Trismegistus and who is Hermes? Cause you have the Hermes of classical Greek mythology and then you have Mercury and then you have this Hermes Trismegistus and you have Thoth Hermes. Do you think that, or it seems to me that Hermes Trismegistus is, I mean, he's immortal. He's a man. What time period are you thinking this was written? And was it written by him, or was this a, a later kind of oral uh, teaching that was written down, you know, who knows how, how much longer? The Corpus Hermeticum was definitely written by, was mo most definitely written by the people who were these practicing Alexandrian hermetists. Uh, Alexandria probably wasn't the only place they were located, but it was their center, their cultic center. They had close relations with um, going a little further east, Haran, um, that that whole area in in Mesopotamia. They had close relationships with that. Instead, there was actually interchange between the um, people in Haran who had the cult, the the temple and cult of the moon god Sin, and um, the Hermetists of Alexandria, and before that, of Hermopolis or Kemenu in Egypt. Now, do you think Hermes Trismegistus was a an actual person who took that name, kind of like Pseudo Dionysus, or um, there was even an alchemist in I think the third century who called himself Agathodemon. Do you think that's happening here? That it's a man who took on that name? Well, typically, um, typically the mystics who had felt that they had attained to a sort of apotheosis of um, where the attained to an apotheosis of union with, with the deity in this case, Thoth and who had been uh, schooled and initiated in the uh, symbolic mystery system would then adopt a pseudonym to write under because they didn't feel that the wisdom was their own. They felt that the wisdom was actually the wisdom of the God that had been transmitted to them through, you know, the hierophantic instruction, you know, esoteric illumination, and also ritualistic initiation. So, you know, there was study of sacred texts, there was ceremonial initiation, there was direct one-on-one -on -one instruction, which probably lasted for a considerable amount of time. If you consider uh, comparisons with the Pythagoreans, for instance, or the Neoplatonists, I mean, there was often a one-on-one -on -one relationship or a one on two or three, you know, usually very similar to the Indian guru and his chelas, you know, you would have a, a master teaching his disciples. And we see that pattern reflected in the Corpus Hermeticum where um, it is, you know, first we see news teaching Hermes, and then we see Hermes teaching um, Tat, teaching Asclepius, teaching Amen. And that's significant because Tat is really just Tot. And then Amen, of course, is the Egyptian god Amen, and Asclepius is the Greek god 
of healing, who was also venerated in the Egyptian mysteries. Uh, Asclepius was considered to be like Hermes was the, the Greek expression of the God that Thoth was the, the Egyptian expression of. Uh, Asclepius was the, was the Greek, there's a Hellenic expression of the, of the God Imhotep, the, the deified, um, the deified mortal physician, uh, scholar and priest who, who was beloved by the Egyptian people. He was basically like a saint. And he was, Imhotep was considered to be very closely associated with Thoth. So then we see, um, you know, so when we see Asclepius, Asclepius and Imhotep were considered to be different forms of the same deity. So just to, just to clarify really quickly. So, so there was, there was, Hermetism is a, is and was an intact, uh, system of theology with its own mythology, with its own theology, with its own, uh, esoteric practices, uh, theurgy, alchemy, um, you know, contemplation, a form of meditation was practiced. There was, Giles Quispel suggests that it was very likely based on the evidence that they have that there was uh, a lodge in Alexandria, almost like a proto-Masonic lodge uh, that that was held in secret that these people operated within. So, so you know, there was probably an oath of secrecy. We have remains uh, underground of underground temples depicting Hermanubis, Asclepius, Thoth, uh, the child Horus. These are all important god forms in the system. So that distinguishes it. Now, Hermeticism has really come to mean, it's come to be a catch-all term for the Western mystery tradition in latter times. So Hermeticism is really a blanket term that can mean, you know, Golden Dawn, can mean Martinism, can mean, you know, the, the whole inheritance of the synthesis of the Western mystery tradition, which actually includes foreign influences that are from the East. This is because, you know, mythically speaking, uh, Thoth or Hermes Trismegistos was considered to be the, the founder of these arts and the, the, the God who transmitted them to, to us. So in the Western mystery tradition, in an honorific way, we call it Hermeticism. Which is totally appropriate. Yeah, it really is. It really is, because being the god of language, being the god of magic, being the god of cultural interchange, um, among other things, you know, those things are all very significant elements of hermeticism. And then, you know, being the god of alchemy, you know, alchemy is, hu- is huge. It used to be bigger in the Western mystery tradition, but it's still a huge component of it, as is theurgy, which has come back into focus as of recent times, and uh, thaumaturgy and gosha. And he was considered to be sort of the transmitter of these arts. So moving on, I, I had a few things I wanted to clarify or, or talk about more specifically and just focus in on from from the Poimandres, book one and book, book two. May I interrupt you? I forgot something. Okay. Quickly, um, now this started uh, because of Cosimo de Medici and the other Renaissance geniuses, you know, who we call Renaissance men. You know, when the, when the Hermetica were... were rediscovered from the Arab world and translated, this created this explosion of interest and it really seeded the culture of the Renaissance. The Renaissance really came from the Hermetica. Mm-hmm. 
And because of this, that's when we started, that's when Hermeticism really started was in the Renaissance. So Hermeticism does have a root in Hermetism. I mean, the core, the core, the core book of, of both is still the Corpus Hermeticum. I just want to cover some things from the poem Andres, book one, and then book two as well. Just focus in on a little bit more, give a little bit more attention to, like we said earlier, we could, we could spend a whole series of podcasts on just, you know, a paragraph or two, really. But, um, the first one I want to touch on was the downward moving darkness at the beginning. So there's light and then there's a downward moving darkness. And there's really no explanation as to why there's a downward moving darkness necessarily. Whereas in the secret book of John, you, you have an explanation for why things start to unfold. Um, the one reflects on itself and then these emanations start uh, happening like dominoes just start falling and cascading. But in the Corpus Hermeticum, it doesn't really explain it. I think you have to really be able to read between the lines. So what, what's, what do you say about this downward moving darkness and, and why this is even, why this is happening? What, what this is all about? Well, you're right. The Corpus Hermeticum doesn't give us a why. And I think that's because of the pragmatic Kemetic or Egyptian approach. I think they were, the Hermetists were less concerned with the why and more concerned with the how because understanding the how enabled us to discover ways to rectify that. You know? So I think in the typically Egyptian, it's one of the many reasons we can say that the Corpus Hermeticum is Egyptian. Um, a holistic attitude, uh, almost shamanic, shamanistic naturalism, and also this pragmatic attitude of transformation, trans transforming the situation. So I think that, you know, we could verge into Gnosticism and talk about the passion of Sophia, or in the paraphrase of Shem, how it's the Logos, actually, mm-hmm. which, you know, in later theology, Sophia and the Logos are hypostases of each other. So apples and oranges, really, you know, they're not very different. They're sort of different expressions of the same idea. Um, but the idea is that it came from the Logos. But that's a Gnosticism, which did, Gnosticism did, did try to seek out the root, the origin of these things. The Hermetists didn't. And I think that's, that's because, as I said before, they were more concerned with understanding how the situation works and how it initially unfolded from that point so they could reverse it through alchemy. And I think even, even in the Egyptian though, the cosmogenesis from Atum, is it Atum, Atum? Yeah, Atum. They, they do give an explanation for why that unfolds. It's almost like he's lonely or he's also reflecting. Um, but there is more of a, a reasoning as to a why. Would you agree in that, in that story? Yeah, there's a reasoning, but the thing is, there's a different creation narrative in Memphis. There's a different creation narrative in Heliopolis. There's a different creation narrative in um, in Asna. There's a different creation narrative in Hermopolis. So the Egyptians were very comfortable with with you with multiple stories or multiple points of view because they understood that we're dealing with a higher reality, and so these different points of view were different were were cultic points of view according to the cult center but they also served as a way to to free the mind from 
rigid dogmatism and literalism. Okay. Um, the second point I wanted to look at was, um, I think it is, it's in book one and it's section eight. Let's see. Then I said, whence did the elements of nature have their origins? He answered, Poem Andres, noose, from the will of God, which, holding the word and seeing the beautiful cosmos, made one exactly like it, fashioned from her own constituent elements and the offspring of souls. So I didn't mention earlier, but this is the second time we're recording this podcast. Last time we had technical difficulties. So I'm trying to remember why I wrote these questions down for you. Um, I believe when we, we recorded this last time, my thought for bringing that up was that it sounded like there was a mention of the Platonic forms. Um, it says that God is looking at the image of the cosmos and saw that it was beautiful and wanted to make a copy of the cosmos. Um, do you see the Platonic forms in that? In addition to that, I also see this process of reflection. So man is created in the image of God. The heavenly man is created in the image of God, or noose. Then the image of the heavenly man is reflected in the waters of nature, which then in turn forms, that reflection is actually nature forming an image of the heavenly man. So you have, you have the, the, the heavenly man created by God as an image of God or an image of noose. And then you have nature creating the natural man as an image of the heavenly man which in turn is an image of noose. So there's a three threefold process of emanation that occurs here. The waters are also symbolic in two ways. They're symbolic of the waters of nature, of the, of the waters of matter, which are the materia prima of the alchemical process. They're also a direct reference to noon in Egyptian theology. Noon is the water, the black watery infinitude from which all creation arises. These aren't separate. And I think that anyone familiar with alchemy, as well as anyone familiar with the um, uh, creation mythologies of different Kabbalistic theories will find a lot to think about here. Um, but, but I think what especially interests me is that reflection and that emanate, that emanative reflection process that occurs. Cause you have man as an emanation of the supreme passing through the levels and layers of reality and then joining with his image in the in the subterranean or in, you know lower reality and that seems to be a theme in the corpus hermeticum is just this layering of of copies yes copies and processes of of formation too cuz there's there's creation phases, multiple creation phases in the Corpus Hermeticum, and, and it goes in stages. But in each creation phases, the previous creations are re- recapitulated. Okay, so that was good. So let's let's keep moving, because um, there's a lot to talk about. Let's see. I also wanted to touch on kind of the moral things that are happening in the Corpus Hermeticum, which, you know, I never really thought of, I didn't think of this work as as having such a moral element to it. I want to start with the talk about the avenging spirit, which is mentioned in Book 1, Section 23. And you gave a great answer to this on the last podcast that got erased. Let's see if you can replicate that awesome answer. Thank you for putting me on the spot. I really appreciate the pressure. Um, I think it's important for us also to recall, before we go into this, to recall the very hermetic 
idea of as above, so below. Macrocosm reflecting the microcosm, the microcosm reflecting the macrocosm. So the microcosm is a localized, a localized, relativized reflection of the universal, universal principles. This is important because the avenging spirit also lives within the human soul. The avenging spirit cosmically exists, and then there's an avenging spirit within the man, uh, which is why the avenging spirit can act upon the soul because it has a corresponding element within the human being, which is the conscience. Uh, the conscience, which becomes lighter, again, this is Egyptian theology recalling the judgment scene where Thoth weighs the heart of a deceased human being in the uh, tribunal, the court of Osiris, with Anubis or Impu, you know, assisting. Thoth, in the Egyptian myth, which most of the listeners are probably familiar with to some degree, the human, those, the heart, the ab, the eb, of the human soul is weighed against the feather of Ma'at, which among other things represents truth, righteousness, moral order, balance, harmony, um, you know, all those things. It's, it's a, it's a multidimensional world word. So natural order is another way to put it. But anyway, so the soul, the conscience, which is light, the heart, which is light, of course, then becomes a fit habitation for the spirit of God. Uh, this the heart which is burdened by um, bad moral choices then becomes darkened and comes under the sway of a punishing conscience uh, cosmically that's reflected as the avenging spirit because part of the reason for moral for purification is to render you suitable for um, for the divine light to flow into you. So yeah, it, it definitely talks about um, this as being a part of the human conscience, um, and the more you kind of start to go down a certain path, it seems that you'll just start, and it even says this pretty much verbatim, that you'll just start going down into like a downward spiral, that it's just going to keep um, accumulating this negativity. And I've seen that happen in a person's life. I've seen that happen in people's lives. Both potentials are possible. You know, the idea is that it, 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 is, it says that noose abandons people who make those kinds of decisions and then giving way to the avenging spirit who will spur them on to gradually more unrighteous actions. Right. You know, it, it actually encourages them to continue committing right. transgressions. And since they're deprived of the, of the benefit of the guidance of noose, which incidentally manifests as the personal genius, um, those familiar with Socrates, yes, there's a relationship to the genius, genius of Socrates. In the Hermeticism, in the Western mystery tradition, this is the holy guardian angel. Um, it's also called the daimon or agathodaimon in Greek. This is the personal or microcosmic reflection of nous, and the way that the genius speaks is through the voice of the conscience. Uh, so, so when noose abandons the person, the, the beneficial influence of the higher mind, uh, departs. But really what happens is that it, it is clouded by the ignorance and the defilements that arise from the, uh, inappropriate, uh, decisions that are made. And you can see this in the escalation of physical conflict in, in humans, at least, where it starts off fairly benign, maybe somebody bumps into somebody else in the proverbial, you know, bar, and 
you know, they just can't help themselves. You just start going down this road of, of ignorance and anger. And once you get anger going, it definitely starts clouding you and it just keeps escalating and escalating until, you know, violence happens inevitably if you don't keep it under control. Yes. And that's the thing that we need to look at here is news is a blessing and a gift to people. Um, the moral development, um, the moral unfoldment is not just, it's, 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 it's not a, um, it's not a, it's not a retributive punishment idea. And in the Corpus Hermeticum, the Hermes and Noose uh, at different points are at pains to, to make it clear that this is not about you should fear and thus, thus obey out of fear. The entire focus of, of this book and, and really this, this path is to illuminate the understanding of the, the, of, of the soul who is pious and desires union with the divine. You know, so, so the, the true aim of moral development is to purify the soul and render it clear and clean and, and receptive so that it is capable of receiving the divine light. Because mm-hmm. the soul held down by darkness, even if it were to receive the divine light, it would be oblivious to it because its interior perception would be clouded by, by the darkness produced by its unrighteous actions. Right. Right. And, and I think you see this in, you know, Judaism with, with, um, repentance and, you know, Catholicism with, you go to confession of, of kind of wiping, trying to wipe the slate clean, create a more holy atmosphere and, you know, moving forward from that. Right. And so then the mystic, the magician, the sage, they take it a step further by trying to live, live that life. Not just confess and repent and then commit more sins, but instead there's a, there's a sense of almost an athletic striving for the higher life, to become a better person morally, to live a higher life, to be stronger morally, to be stronger spiritually. There's a certain, there's a certain um, plateau that's hit in that kind of practice where one then, you don't fall back. It's very unlikely you'll fall back. And that has to do with the level of purity that the soul attains from consistent moral discipline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that was, I'm sure that was the goal with Judaism and, and, you know, obviously with Christianity is of, of keeping that, holding that as long as you can, but very difficult to do. It is very difficult to do, but it is not impossible. And the key is a continued effort. And, and the idea behind the, in the CH is that noose will come to those souls who are striving and grant them the strength and assistance. And the more they try, you know, it's different saying that noose will come to the soul is the same thing as saying the soul will be gradually more able to perceive noose as it becomes more pure, as its eternal, internal perception becomes clarified and purified, then it becomes more able to see noose because essentially noose is omnipresent. It's we who alienate ourselves from noose through um, acting in devious, unrighteous and dishonest ways. 
the more we behave that way, the more we um, fashion an illusion within our own minds and live within the illusion that we fashioned, like people in a dream who do not realize they're asleep. Whereas the aim of the hermitist is to wake up while in the dream, become free, and then ascend within the dream to higher levels of awareness. Very cool. Yeah, we can go down that rabbit hole, but I'm going to, I'm going to resist. Um, so what I thought was interesting in our last podcast, I don't think you mentioned it in, in this one. And, and by our last podcast, I mean the one that never got recorded. Um, is that you mentioned the, the, this microcosm, macrocosm of the avenging spirit as well. So not only is it within us, but it also exists as an entity. Do you remember talking about that? Yes, yes. Well, and would you have, what do you think? Is there, is there a, something that we can compare this avenging spirit to maybe, um, in other systems? Like if this avenging spirit is an entity, is it reflected anywhere else or do we have any, anything to compare it to? I have an excellent analogy from the Christian tradition. In the apocryphal, in the apocryphal book of Tobit, which speaks of the archangel Raphael, And keep in mind that Raphael is the archangel traditionally associated with the planet Mercury. Raphael means God heals. And if you'll notice, a a major focus of the hermetic, hermetists of the hermetic tradition is healing, healers. Um, That's why Asclepius, you know, uh, Imhotep, Hermes, Lord of Medicines, you know, Thoth, Lord of Medicine. We could go on about that forever, but it's a, it's a succinct and recurrent characteristic of in the Hermetic tradition. In this book, Tobit, Tobias, I believe the son of Tobit, um, he encounters Raphael, who aids him because he is to marry, and the woman he is to marry is actually being held prisoner by a demon called Asmodeus. Asmodeus is uh actually from Persian tradition. Um and Osmodius comes from the Persian Ashmadeva or Ashmadev, uh demon of wrath, or um, you know, so is a punishing or avenging spirit, literally the spirit of wrath or the spirit of punishment. Hmm. And you know, to make a long story short, Raphael teaches uh the young Tobias Son of Ananias, I think maybe is what he's called. Um, he teaches he teaches him how to use this fish in a magical way, and then the fish is smoked, and so on and so forth. And then Raphael, who has a reputation for binding demons, you know, deals with deals with Asmodeus. Anybody who wants to read it can just you know go to the Apocrypha um, and look up the Book of Tobit. But the point is the Book of How do you spell it? T O T O B I T. Okay. Yeah. The point is, it's a actually pretty esoteric book if you know what you're looking for and you know how to read it. And here again, we have a hermetic figure actually banishing a, a demon who is an avenging spirit. In a different way, Noose banishes that spirit for the righteous man, but he gives way to that spirit. See, in a way, we're all the um, the young wife of of Tobias or wife to be, because that's our soul. And, and, you know, the, the angel Raphael represents the, the emissary of noose, you know, coming to us. And of course we have the fish as not only a traditionally 
uh, Christian symbol, but also a traditionally hermetic symbol because fishes are uh, interchangeable with serpents. So, yeah, so, so, you know, there you, you know, there's a mythological figure there who is considered to be a, a chief, a chief force of ignorance in the world. Okay. Wrathfulness. That's an example. I mean, you could also make a correlation between the Gnostic demiurge and the spirit of wrath or the not, or the adversary in the Christian tradition and the spirit of wrath. Cause the adversary is typically a, a punishing spirit, you know, and an instigating spirit and an instigating spirit. And in, in Judaism, he's actually an angel, you know, he's an angel of God. He's not demoted as he is in Christianity to just simply being a sort of demonic opponent. Um, really, really in Judaism, he's considered to be an angelic being who is just doing his job as a, um, as a force, as almost the prosecuting attorney in the heaven court who's, who's providing opportunities for man to make mistakes, um, and do the wrong thing. So then we see this transferred to the idea of the human being having a good angel and a bad angel or a good angel and a devil on either side of them. And they're always presented with opportunities between the two. And the more you choose one or the other, the more the influence of that one increases. So naturally, if you continue to make bad decisions, then the perfidious or negative, the spirit, that spirit becomes stronger. And then you, you become more, more inclined to make those decisions. And that, or that doctrine does originate in Zoroastrianism. However, considering that Hermitism, uh, is very, especially the Egyptian Hermitism involves itself with the symbolism of the twins very much, that also is resumed in Egyptian symbolism. And that goes back to the contendings of Horus and Set, which again are cosmic entities which represent light and darkness, knowledge and ignorance respectively, among other things. But also in the human soul, they represent enlightened or illuminated consciousness and the lower soul leading us toward um, material concerns and the appetites of the body, defiant stubbornness, irrational actions, and so on and so forth. Okay. And along these same lines, I mean, when, when, I, th when I think of the Corpus Hermeticum, it's a very intellectual, heady, kind of high-minded, you know, it really takes you to another place deep within inside yourself you're, you're looking deep you're, you're having these deep moments but there's a lot of very practical stuff that we're talking about um another thing that kind of surprised me was the this um emphasis on repentance and on salvation that you find in book one and even of um hermes kind of the evangelist going out and preaching to people to repent and to find salvation yeah, well, Hermes being the Logos, Logos is the Word, and so salvation occurs through means of the Word, the teaching, the authoritative instruction, the, the, you know, the, the, the Word comes forth from the mind, so the Logos, you know, the Logos comes from the Noose, Hermes comes from Noose. And I think that it's significant because for a very long time there was a predisposition towards seeing anything involved with the ideas of you know, oh, well, look, this is salvation. They're talking about salvation. They're talking about redemption. They're talking about these things. This is very Christian. This represents a Christian influence. And, and unfortunately, you know, mm -hmm. 
that that's 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 a point of view that isn't really accurate, but it but it, it makes sense when you're dealing with the Christian majority. Um, the Christ, Christianity is just one example of multiple movements at the time which had saviors, savior figures who enjoined the soul, the human being to live in a righteous way, to believe in heaven, to strive for heaven, to purify oneself, to seek to become free from the world. Um, these things aren't the sole prerogative or province of Christianity. Do you see them in the ISIS cult, for instance, as well? That was my question. I didn't mean to say that, uh, and I don't think you thought I was saying this, but not that Christianity influenced hermitism or vice versa, but that this seemed to be fairly common. A religious a impulse, theme. yes. It's a religious impulse that surfaced in humanity at the time um, and became more prevalent. And I believe it became prevalent due to the very pronounced presence of the archetypes at a, as a, at a point in history when they may have been needed the most at a turning point in history. Egypt had fallen. Rome was to fall not that long after that. The world was going through, at least the Western world, was going through tremendous changes. And because of that, I think that this idea of a salvific doctrine did arise. And it is a human impulse. But I, from my own experience and my own interior understanding combined with my study, I have to say that it's also clear that this impulse does not only arise from you know, a literary tradition, but it arises from a direct contact with the archetypes themselves. And when we say archetypes, like we've said before in the previous episodes, we're speaking about the literal heavenly beings, the, the gods. We're not talking about, you know, psychological abstractions or ancestral patterns, although those things are part of the way that the archetypes often uh, are experienced by us in our mind. Being that this is such an important book, I would assume, for the system of Hermitism, um, this first book that kind of lays it all out on the table, there is there is a heavy emph- um, emphasis on Hermes kind of evangelizing, uh, this emphasis on Hermes kind of going out and preaching these salvific, illuminated um, ideas to people in order so that they can repent and gain salvation. Do you think that this was a mold that should be followed for you know modern practic- practitioners, being that it is such an important part of this book? I think the book is significant because it shows a lot of patterns like that. You have the evangelizing. You have also a clear system of the way that instruction occurred. Often there is one teacher and between one and three students who are learning directly from the teacher, as I, as I, I made the analogy earlier in the conversation of a guru and their, their chelas, their disciples, um, and I think this was the way early Christianity worked in the very early days of it too. And this is, this is probably the pattern that it took, where a teacher, a sage, a teacher of righteousness, uh, a philosopher, a um, hierophant, an initiate would would place the word out there, and like a fisher of men, 
or uh, like someone throwing a net, he would he would bring in those who were receptive to the word, gather them in, and then the, he would give them more individuated and direct instruction. And then eventually, once they had received a certain measure of instruction, frequently there would be an initiation. And uh, after the initiation, there would probably be a more more detailed instruction and guidance and um, and uh, instruction in practical aspects of the tradition as well, such as alchemy, such as theurgy, such as other forms of mysticism and so on and so forth. Another thing you see in the in the Hermetic books, not in the Corpus Hermeticum, but you find them in the Hermetic books in the Nachamani Library, is from that evidence we see not only did the Hermetists evangelize to a certain degree, probably not nearly as aggressively as the the exoteric Christians did, but you also see that they shared a sacred meal. Yeah, so they celebrated in prayer and then they shared a sacred meal. And in fact, it's it's detailed that the meal was a bloodless meal, that there was no meat in it. So it was a sacred vegetarian meal that the hermitists ate. And they uttered a prayer of thanksgiving before they ate their meal. So they probably met at a form of a mass of their own, not unlike the Christians, partook of a meal after giving thanks which was composed primarily of animal matter. I mean, plant matter. So so we see multiple parallels with early Christianity. Evangelizing, a uh, you know, direct teacher-student relationship, a group meal, shared prayer. And that's because this impulse was something that was not unique to Christianity. So why do you think hermitism didn't take off? Um in such a public way, is it because they still work more of a secretive initiatory, they had this initiatory kind of core to, to the system? Would that kind of keep it more internal? Yes, well, I think the reason, it's the same reason we see the Hermetic books in the Najamadi Library, which was, you know, founded Chenoboskion in what was in 1942. It wasn't published till almost 1980, but... Mm-hmm. It, you know the reason the reason we see that is because I think the Gnostics, who who the early Gnostics all identified as Christians, the the first people to call themselves Gnostics, considered were Christians. They can they identified as Christians. And we have evidence of this. So in the early in the early system here, we have we have a secret esoteric interior component, uh, whereas Christianity developed an exoteric shell, Hermitism never really developed that exoteric shell because it was never intended right. to be a collectivist movement. It was, it was never intended. It was understood, I believe, by the Hermitists that all human beings were not equally uh, capable of salvation. That's why only certain people would hear the word and respond to it and turn toward it, you know, and, and that's true today. The majority of people don't, don't really engage in religious worship. You know, the majority of people you meet are not, do not identify as religious in our age. 
there are some people who do and see it as more of a familial practice or a social practice. But among even all the even the people who who do see it that way, what percentage of those people are actively engaged with the spiritual world? What percentage of those people, for what percentage of those people, is the spiritual world a true priority? So it's it's a minority. It's a small amount. It's a small niche group, and and I believe the hermitist understood that, and and that's the difference in my opinion. It was initiatory. It. it was considered private. I mean, consider the term hermetically sealed. You know, when you hermetically seal something, you seal it off from, from everything. And that even goes back, that goes back to the alchemical process of hermetically sealing a vessel. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to touch on, we haven't been able to touch on it because we always run out of time, and so it just keeps getting pushed on to the next episode, is the idea of the immortality of the cosmos. And so we see this in book eight, actually, and that's where I was kind of what I'm referencing. Um, it talks about nothing, nothing in the universe is destroyed. And so for me, there's, there's, it's, it's drawing a distinction between the immortal and the eternal, the immortal being the reflection of the eternal. And so while the cosmos is immortal, it shares in the property of of being eternal, but it's not eternal. So in order to be a, a reflection of that, and tell me if I'm going too weird with this, but um, it has to change its properties. So it's able to reflect eternity, but not in the same way. So being immortal may require, you know, reincarnation. You know, matter is going to break down, but it's going to turn into something else. So... You know, if you're a gardener, you know that this is the cycle. You know, plants grow, they die, you use them for compost. The same minerals are still there from the plant. It's now in the soil, and now it's being used to grow the next plant. But it's the same minerals. It's the same kind of core ingredients. It's a cycle that keeps continuing, and so that might be immortality, where eternity might be more of a a constant, like this plant just never dies and it never breaks down. Where in immortality, it's breaking down and growing and becoming something else. It's still the same essence, but it has to go through this different process. Well, first of all, there is that reference to Empedocles who talked about the four elements and their, circul their circul circulation and how the death of one is the life of another, but how nothing is ever destroyed. Right, right. However, the cosmos... Because of the material component of it, the material component of the cosmos being subject to death renders everything within it impermanent. Because of the impermanence, it's in a perpetual state of transformation. So no form in the cosmos is permanent. It's all changing. It's all transforming. However, in the transformation, there is eternity. Because eternity and infinity are two different words, and they mean two different things. Eternity is cyclical. Infinity is endless. So, so the eternal cycle is a rhythmic, cyclical procession where there is recurrence and recursion, even at times, um, so one thing begets another, begets another. So each form in the impermanent realm 
it's not permanent, but the the realm itself uh, reflects eternity by the process of transformation. The transformation is a reflection of eternity. I think that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> it sounds like what I was trying to articulate. And I think that that really only applies to the lower realm. Because of the imperfection of the lower realm, it, it has to be constantly in a in a state of transformation, subject to decay, subject to change. Whereas in the celestial realm, the with the you know the realm of noose, you could say there's a different order to things where things are timeless and permanent and endless. And that's the realm of the archetypes. That's the realm of the the true gods. Right. Which in the Corpus Hermeticum it says, you know, gods are nothing but immortal humans, and humans are nothing but mortal gods. So there's, in a sense, and again, we're talking about true humans, human beings who have, who are aware, are are considered at least within the frame of Hermetism to be incarnate divine souls or divine spirits, who, while in the body, experience. Uh, temporality and thus experience change and sickness and death while at the same time in their essence being immortal they possess a twofold nature they're the only beings in the in the in the universe that both are mortal and immortal so the, the immortal becomes mortal through incarnation and through excarnation the mortal becomes immortal so would you agree that that even the hylic human beings are, are participating in this immortality of the cosmos, but they won't be able to taste the eternal. Is the eternal once you go beyond kind of the, the eighth realm into the ninth realm? The infinite. Yeah. Infinite. Yeah. Infinite. Right. Okay. So everyone yeah. is immortal, but not everyone is going to be infinite or eternal. Yes. That's at least the Gnostic perspective. The Corpus Hermeticum isn't clear on whether all humanity is capable of redemption or not. So that is more of a Gnostic perspective. But it does, it does make it clear that those who would attain must purify themselves and become worthy and pious. Okay. And that goes into kind of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. All right. Any final words for this episode? Um, just Time's up. <laughs> just again, nope. I think I think the emanation, the the emanation and reflection process is very important. It's a reflex of you know the the infernal is a reflex of the supernal. You know the chthonic is a reflex of the celestial, but because of the different character and nature of the lower realm. It reflects the celestial in the way it is able to. It is not capable of reflecting the the heavenly realm as a perfect reflection, or it would be it would be exactly that. It would be a mirror right. image of the heavenly realm, and because it is made of the downward moving darkness, which is ignorance, which is actually a lapse of consciousness or a la- or an unconsciousness. Um, because of the unconsciousness, the ignorance, ignorance, unconsciousness, this is exp- the experience of death, which is the incarnation into a material form. 
because of this experience, death of death, you know, this is why the, the, the ignorance, the unconsciousness, this is why, uh, is engendered the production of transformation that sets the cosmos into motion so that the, the lighter parts, which are, which are also outlined in that first book of the Corpus Hermeticum may rise up from the watery darkness. You know, so it's almost like a cyclical, it's almost like a cycle, cyclical process where the, the spirit is actually lifted up, rises up again to return back to an earlier analogy used in a previous episode. It's like if you have a cup filled with water that has silt, that has oil and has water in it, you stir it up, it will all be mixed together, which is like the beginning, the chaos as it settles the elements separate. So you have the lighter elements on top, the medial element in the middle, which is still somewhat transparent. And then beneath that, you have the silt, the lower elements. And so the idea, I think, is also, again, we're talking about the practical component because the corpus hermeticum has to be read in both a practical microcosmic sense of almost a manual for not only how things work when you're doing the work, and how to do the work. It's also a description uh, which includes ontology and theology and all the other ologies um, about the, the generation of humankind and of the cosmos and of the world and of the world's soul and how the universe works and how the stars work and how you know the descent into this realm and out of this realm occur. So there's two two sides to it. You have to look at it from two sides because in the alchemical process, this entire thing we've been describing is mirrored. And thus the active agent in alchemy is the mercury. Like I said earlier, I am pretty confident we're going to come back to the Corpus Hermeticum um, fairly soon. Yeah, we will for sure. I mean, I think it's something that needs to be consistent for us. Okay, episode number three is wrapped up. That was a lot of fun. There were also a lot of challenges. My kids were in rare form tonight, and that required quite a bit of editing to to take out some of that noise. Um, my son had a real emergency. Um, apparently my daughter stole some of his Pokemon cards, and so we had to deal with that. We took care of it, and we finished the podcast. And this podcast was actually a long time coming. Um, Janice and I are on different ends of the country, so it's a challenge to coordinate. We have a three-hour time difference, and so we also have to plan around our families. We both have families. We both have full-time jobs. But we made it happen. So thank you for listening. Next episode, we will have our first guest, Mr. Alex Rivera, and the topic will be Simon Magus. It's going to be really cool. It's an awesome topic. I'm really looking forward to it. So make sure to tune in for that. Otherwise, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, uh, website, themagicianandthefool.com. Okay, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.